Second Peter, chapter one, beginning in verse one, Peter writes, Simon, Peter, a bond servant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceeding great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Conservative Bible scholars suggest that the second epistle of Peter was written shortly after Peter's arrest and trial. Different people would date the book differently. This might place it as early as 64 or 65 A.D., possibly as late as 66 A.D. The letter is written under this heavy blanket of imminent execution. What does Peter wish to share in the final moments of his life? And the theme is clearly the assurance of Christ that comes from accurate knowledge that's been given to us by God. By the way, that word knowledge will play an important role in Peter's communication to the saints. In first Peter, Satan is described as a roaring lion who wants to devour the saints in second Peter, Satan is described as a serpent seeking to deceive the saints. Persecution on the outside is painful and awful, but false teaching on the inside is way more dangerous and way more insidious. Persecution seems to have the net effect of cleansing and strengthening biblical faith and false teaching has the net effect of weakening the church and withering the testimony of the saints. So what is the most effective weapon to wage war against false teaching and against the devil's lies? And the answer in part is the revelation of God in Christ Jesus the word of God, the word made flesh. And this is why Peter's emphasis is going to be on spiritual knowledge. And it will play such an important role in our discussion of his second epistle. You see, Peter's final words are written with the saints in mind, the saints who are suffering, the saints who are in persecution. But I'm going to suggest to you that Peter has way more than just the immediate circle in mind, not just the collective and global body of Christ that he's writing to at that particular time. But his words reach out through time and space and have the ability to speak to us. Peter's final words have you in mind and have me in mind with Peter's dying breath. He wants the saints to be able to distinguish between truth and error to guard against false teaching and then to stand firm in the faith. And that should bring an immediate question that you should ask yourself. How important to me is truth and error? How important to, to me is false teaching and true teaching? How important is it to me that I stand firm in the faith that's been given to me by God through Jesus Christ, perfected through the Holy Spirit? In this chapter, we're going to look at the gift of knowledge in verses 1 through 4, the growth of knowledge in verses 5 through 11, and then the ground of knowledge in verses 12 through 21. Peter reminds us that salvation is a historical event that has taken place in the sacrifice of Jesus, but it's also a personal experience. And in verse 5, Peter writes... But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge. When he writes 
those words, he is suggesting and indicating that beyond personal salvation is personal growth in the truth. As a matter of fact, one of the questions that frequently arises in the new believer and even the seasoned saint is, how do I know this is true? How do I know the message of the Bible is true? How do I know that the invitation that's being given by Peter and James and John as I read through the Bible, how do I know it's true? How can I be sure that this is the word of God? And both of those questions will be asked and answered in this first chapter in verses 12 through 21. The second chapter will then focus on false teachers. It will begin with their condemnation in chapter two, verses one through nine. And then Peter will describe their character in verses 12 through 21. As a matter of fact, when we get to the end of the chapter, he will go from their condemnation to their to their character, to their false claims Focusing on that in verses 17 through 22. And in the final chapter, the veteran apostle and the loving shepherd will give both to sheep and lambs four final words of exhortation and admonition. Four times in the last chapter, Peter, Peter will use the word beloved and he will say beloved, be mindful in, in chapter three, verses one through seven, beloved, don't be ignorant in verses eight through 11, beloved, be diligent in verses 11 through 14. And then he'll end the, the, the little epistle with beloved. I need you to beware in verses 15 through 18. So remember in the first epistle, the theme is Grace in the midst of suffering in this second epistle, the theme is knowledge, knowledge of God, knowledge of Jesus. And again, this isn't simply the knowledge as it's revealed in the Bible. It's not just simply the knowledge that surrounds the birth, the life, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. But it goes from the kind of knowledge that you read about to the kind of knowledge that you experience in genuine salvation when you turn from your sin and, and you embrace Jesus as Lord. Clearly and unfortunately, it's possible to increase our awareness of the knowledge of the facts of Jesus. That's Bible truth in our heads, but remain somewhat disabled, developmentally disabled in how the life of Jesus is manifested in our lives. And that means showing the truth about the Bible and showing the truth about Jesus in our lives. You see, Peter's goal is the goal of every shepherd. It's the goal of every pastor. We want to learn more about the word of God and we want to live the word of God. We should not be content to simply learn about Jesus. We want to be like Jesus. And so he's going to push us in that direction. Now, by the way, not everyone shares that goal. Some people want to prove that the Bible is not true. Some people want to prove that the claims of Christ aren't true. As a matter of fact, during um, the Cold War and the former Soviet Union, as they tried to stamp out Christianity, one frustrated Russian commissar said, Christianity is like nail. The harder you hit the nail, the further it goes deep into the wood. He's right. You pound on that nail of the truth claims of Jesus. And every time you hit it, you find yourself being embedded with the claims pierced through with the reality that Jesus Christ is Lord. You see, here's the secret of Christianity. It's true. It's true. 
The secret of Christianity is that Jesus can and will forgive your sin. The secret of Christianity is Jesus will reconcile you to the Father. The secret of Christianity is that you're reconciled to the Father and you're given a permanent friendship and relationship with God the Father throughout all of eternity. And what can you substitute with that? In the, so the Christian life begins in faith. Faith in a person in verses 1 through 2. That faith includes God's power in verse 3. And God's promises in verse 4. Christianity, salvation in Christ, is the supernatural work of God from start to finish. In the early church, some false teachers taught that salvation was a gradual process of overcoming the corruption of the material world and gradually becoming more like God. And they taught that this transformation comes through long and complicated series of mysterious religious rites and mystical experiences. They conceived that man's final state and circumstance would be some kind of vague, impersonal, non-material immortality. The heretics had no idea that salvation occurs in three tenses. In the past, we've been saved from the penalty of sin, made members of God's family and given the new birth, declared righteous, made citizens of heaven through Jesus Christ the Lord. We are saved from sin's power, growing in grace and in knowledge, becoming more like Jesus And then we shall be perfectly holy one day, having been delivered from the presence of sin. And this isn't something that we achieve through personal effort. All stages of salvation is the work of God. All stages of salvation is the grace of God. And so it begins, Peter says, with a precious faith. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. In verse 1 it says, Simon, Peter... A bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It begins with Jesus as God's glorious Messiah. Jesus is the Savior of the world. Jesus is the one who's able to meet the desperate needs of human beings. Ancient letters differ from from modern letters, when you write a letter, you'll typically say, Dear Gino, I was at church last week, and uh, I just want you to know something. You preached too long. Signed, so-and-so. Now, typically, in our culture and society, we look at the return address and we look at the bottom of the letter so we can see who sent us the letter before we read the letter. Actually, the ancients, I think, had it right. Isn't that what you do anyway? Don't you want to know whose letter you're reading right from the start? And so that's the way they did it. And right from the start, we learn that it's Simon Peter. And yes, this is the Peter who's talked about in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is the Peter who was called in the opening chapter of, of, of John's gospel when he was a fisherman by the side of the sea. This is the same Peter who walked with Jesus and talked with Jesus, who was present during his miracles and transfiguration. This is the same Jesus who saw This is the same Peter who witnessed the death of Jesus and the execution of Jesus. This is the same Peter who disappointed Jesus. This is the same Peter who was restored by Jesus. That's the Peter that we're talking about. And this Peter claims to be a bond servant and an apostle. By the way, bond servant translates the word doulos. Doulos is a word that came to mean a slave or a servant, but it was a word that incorporated way more than simple slavery. This was a slave who was purchased out of the marketplace, who was totally owned by the master. This was a slave who was bound by law, but something even far more important than the law. And that was the will of the person who was bound. As a matter of fact, a doulos refers to someone who is purchased and possessed so much so that Peter's slavery comes from the fact that he is purchased out of the marketplace of sin. 
He is purchased and loved by the Lord Jesus Christ. So the word describes a slave who exists for the singular purpose of loving, honoring, serving his master, the master's plans, the master's purposes, the master's wishes. And in that culture and society, a do loss had no rights, no privileges other than the rights and the privileges that were awarded by the master. And so from Simon Peter, he understands that all of the rights and the privileges that he has has been given to him by the lordship of Jesus Christ. And Peter doesn't use the title shamefully or cowardly or reluctantly. He embraces it as a title of honor because this is the honor of a person who has been given the distinct privilege of waiting on a royal monarch. And that should be your attitude and my attitude. You're a doulos, a bondservant. You've been purchased and you are possessed by the Holy Spirit. In the Bible, by the way, Moses is called the slave of God in Deuteronomy 34, 5 and in Psalm 105, verse 26. Joshua is called the slave of God in Joshua 24, 9. David was called the slave of God in 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 18. James, the brother of Jesus, adopts this title for himself. And Jude, the other brother of Jesus, adopts this title for himself. And Peter adopts this title for himself because the point of the title is to exalt and proclaim their devotion to the lordship of Jesus Christ so he begins by calling himself doulos and then he continues by calling himself apostolos that means apostle as a matter of fact it really means one who is sent in service Peter isn't using it primarily as a title to describe a hierarchy in the early church, but rather Peter is using it as a claim that he has been sent by Jesus, that he is in fact Jesus's representative and Jesus's ambassador, so much so that when he speaks to you, when he talks to you, he is talking on behalf of with the privilege and the courtesies and the responsibilities of rightly and appropriately representing his master. That's the point. And so, Peter is called by Jesus. He's not a self-proclaimed prophet with a message different from his master. He believes that Jesus is worthy of devotion. He believes that Jesus is the one singular reason to be alive. And he uses the term Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. The words precious faith means something that's accorded a great honor, that's been given a great price, that's been afforded a great privilege. Now, Peter will use the term precious Many times, but the word translated precious is different in, in the English. As a matter of fact, here, it's a compound word, iso, timos. It's unusual, and it only appears right here in the Greek New Testament. As a matter of fact, the word isos means equal, and timos means honor. And so it came to mean Something that was precious, that was equal in value or equal in honor or equal in privilege. And so when Peter writes to those who have obtained like precious faith, he's writing to people who believe the same thing about Jesus that he does. You know, when I was a kid growing up, I often thought, 
I wonder what it would be like to be a Christian in the first century. I wonder what it would be like to go to church with Peter, James, and John. I wonder if I could sit down with them and I could ask about their faith and their circumstances. How it would be, would it be like mine? Would it be different from mine? And here, Peter is writing and he's suggesting something to you that, that we don't have, that he doesn't have A superior privilege or a superior honor or a superior faith. What he is in effect saying is that you and I share exactly the same faith because we both come into a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ, the Lord. In other words, our faith is in the sacrifice of Jesus, who has been given as the savior of the world. We have turned from our unbelief and our sin. We've embraced Jesus Christ as our Lord and savior. We are born again. What Peter is basically saying is that that, that because our faith has the same source, the sacrifice of Jesus. That. That when we use the term faith, we sometimes use it in an inappropriate way. I grew up in a, in a religious circumstances where if someone were to ask me, well, what is your faith? You know, you speak of a Catholic faith or a Protestant faith. You speak of growing up as a Baptist or a Presbyterian. You speak of growing up as a Lutheran or take a nickel tabernacle. Yeah, you're laughing because is there such a thing? Yeah, there are people who are in it to take your money. But here, when he speaks of our faith, he is talking about a confidence in the lordship of Jesus Christ and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the ascension of Jesus Christ. Our faith is shared by all who are born again. And clearly this kind of faith eliminates fear and prejudice and discrimination. We all stand in like faith, social, economic status, free, slave, prisoner, priest, male, female. We have a mutual faith, a common faith, a precious faith. And it is in, think carefully now, in a person. It's in the person of Jesus Christ. Because it's in Jesus that we're afforded forgiveness of sin. It's in Jesus that we're afforded acceptance by God. It is in Jesus that we're given a privileged companionship with God throughout eternity. And I want to draw your attention to a special word in the passage where it says, to those who have obtained... Look at that word obtained. In the original language, it's lacosine. It means to receive by lot or allotment. It means to be given a share or a portion. Let's say that for whatever reason, you bought a lotto ticket with four other people making a total five. And the lotto jackpot was $100 million. Again, you don't have to be an advanced mathematician to figure this out. How much of the allotment, if it's shared equally, belongs to you? $20 million. How much will be taken by the government? You don't have to answer that. I'm just, just sort of not really kidding, but hey. Using that illustration... We have each collectively, collectively, we've been given a share and an allotment in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. But here's the interesting thing about Christ and about salvation. If five people only accept Jesus as Lord and Savior and receive eternal life, does it diminish the riches in any way? If 50 people receive Christ, if 50 million people receive Christ, if 5 billion people receive Christ, if 50 billion people. In other words, what we're talking about is an inexhaustible resource of righteousness and of grace that's given through Jesus Christ, the Lord. The faith is a gift and given to those who believe the faith comes not by any individual merit or righteousness, but rather the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to pause for a moment and think about the righteousness of Jesus and what that means. Jesus is the perfect person. Jesus is the ideal man. Jesus can stand before God accepted. 
But even more than that, Jesus stands before God and is the perfect provision for every human being. Human beings are by nature fallen, imperfect, impure, unrighteous. We in and of ourselves cannot be made perfect or acceptable. There are those people who say, well, look, if God is loving and if God is compassionate and if God is kind, why doesn't he just forgive you? What? Why doesn't he just go, hey, you're all forgiven and everybody's in? And the reason is because God is all loving and God is all compassionate and God is all kind, but God is also all just and God holy and God is completely holy. In other words, in order to satisfy his own sense of justice and holiness, he has to always, every time, under every circumstance, do what's right. Jesus never sinned, not even one time. Jesus could stand before God, the ideal man. But you need to understand something. Even his perfect birth and life and existence wouldn't be the satisfying solution to the problem of sin. The righteousness of Jesus means that he bore our sin on the cross of Calvary. It's not enough for the ideal man, the righteous man, the perfect man to exist. We Because we're unrighteous, imperfect, require a covering. We've broken God's law. We've violated God's standard. We've rebelled against God. And this is why the Bible says that we've all sinned and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous. No, not one. The Bible says that God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so the penalty for rebellion and treason and for sinning against God has to be paid. And the Lord God is able to credit our account by the willing and perfect sacrifice of Jesus. When does he do that? When we believe by faith in Jesus, when we repent of our sin and our unbelief, God counts the death of Jesus as payment for our sin. And so in verse two, it says grace and peace be multiplied to you by the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. Peter cites the twin privileges always in the New Testament. Whenever you see the two words appear, grace and peace, grace is always Preceded by peace, because grace is what produces peace. Now, remember what grace is. It is the undeserved favor and the blessing of God. As a matter of fact, you will never understand the word grace until you completely come to grips with the word undeserved. There's nothing you can do to merit it, earn it, establish it for yourself. And peace means peace with God. People who believe in God apart from and different from the God in the Bible, imagine this God who won't judge them, who won't punish them, who won't condemn them. They imagine a God who is all loving, all caring, all compassionate. But they also imagine a God who is not holy. And they imagine a God who is not just. You see, the Bible says that there's more to God than just being loving and being compassionate. A holy God and a just God has every right and even a holy and just obligation to deal with man according to his or her transgressions. And this becomes, again, the marvelous gospel of Jesus Christ. That he's dealt with us not according to our sin or rewarded us according to our iniquity, but he's provided the person of Jesus Christ. Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 3, verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Unmerited favor purchasing you out of the marketplace of sin. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, Paul writes, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he becomes poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Why am I saying all of this? Because faith in its origin is supernatural. It comes from God. Faith is in a person. It's not in a belief system. The Christian life begins in faith. Faith in a person. So when Peter writes, 
in the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord, is Peter speaking of one person or two? Is Jesus God? According to verse two, if there are two persons being spoken of, then minimum, it could be argued that Jesus is not necessarily God. But I'm going to suggest to you that he is God. And that a singular person is being made reference to when Peter writes in the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord, he is speaking of Jesus as God. Why do I know that? In Titus chapter two, verse 10, Paul writes, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our savior in all things. And in Titus chapter three, verse four, Paul writes, but when the kindness and love of God, our savior toward man appeared, God is called the savior. Jesus is called Lord and Savior. Look in verse 11 of your Bible. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, another reference in chapter 2, verse 20. If you just turn the page and look at verse 20, it says, For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ... If you look at uh, chapter 3, verse 2, it says that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, of the apostles of our Lord and Savior. Is God our Savior? Is Jesus our Savior? This is exactly right. Now, you've got to understand something. In the ancient world, a savior was somebody who brought about deliverance or salvation in this sense. In the Old Testament and even in some of the New Testament, human beings could be called savior when they accomplish deliverance from something. If a human being spared your life or created a mechanism where an enemy couldn't kill you, if a doctor cured a disease, if a banker bailed you out of a financial crisis, even government officials could be called saviors. You're probably wondering, how could that possibly happen? When they exercised wisdom. When a government official actually exercised decency and honesty and wisdom. He was said to save you from a corrupt government. The Bible teaches that Jesus saves you. Humans might possess resources. And clearly, Jesus provides certain resources that cannot be secured from any other source. In verse 1, it's righteousness. In verse 2, it's grace. And in verse 3, it's peace. In other words, in what way does Jesus save you? Because he can provide righteousness, and he can provide grace, and he can provide peace in order to give you forgiveness and hope. The righteousness of Jesus is sometimes referred to as the rightness or the right standing. And so when the Bible speaks of the righteousness of Jesus, what Jesus imparts to you is your ability to stand before God accepted. And here's the promise of Peter. Jesus stands before God accepted. And because Jesus stands before God accepted, you stand before God accepted. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We're given a right standing on the basis of the sacrifice of Jesus. And grace is way more than mercy. In God's favor to the undeserving, God's grace is what we don't deserve the result of that grace is peace, and that peace is with God. And so think about it. The resource of Jesus provides righteousness. The resource of Jesus provides grace. The resource of Jesus provides peace. 
And so it's also a powerful faith. Look at verse three. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through to the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. Now, do the math. Peter begins by telling you, you are called by God to a supernatural faith. That faith is a saving faith. That faith is in a person, the person of Jesus. That person is experienced when you repent of your sin and you believe by faith, you experience God's divine power. Look at what verse three says as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Question. Is his divine power the power that comes from the father? Yes. Is his divine power the power that comes from the son? I think so. Why? Because the word, the adjective divine is theos. It's the adjective theos from the noun theos. Here's what Peter's writing. Whatever else it means, the meaning is clear. God has called us. In other words, salvation isn't something that's self-directed or even self-inflicted. Faith is in a person. That person allows us to experience the power of God to produce the life of godliness. And so when Peter writes, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life, and to godliness. What do you suppose he means by that? I'm going to suggest something to you. The reference to life isn't just life in the here and the now. Although I think it means that and more. I think it means real life. Eternal life. As opposed to temporal or probationary life. The reference is to a real kind of living that results in the majesty of having a real relationship with the true and the living God. A person who's born into the family of God has metaphorically been given all that is necessary. When a human being is born into a human family, to this very day, you count ten fingers and you count ten toes. Because human beings have ten fingers and ten toes. Now, even if your baby doesn't have ten fingers and ten toes, do you love your baby? Of course you do. What Peter is saying is that we've been given everything that's necessary to function as healthy, normal believers. We are given all of the resources that are necessary for life, real life and godliness. That means the moral character and expression of Christ. So now remember what Peter's doing. He's not interested in you in simply knowing more about Jesus, but becoming like Jesus. The Holy Spirit extends the invitation to come to Jesus. Consideration is given enlightenment, conviction, the enabling work of the spirit. The natural man is hostile to God, spiritually blind, dead in trespass and sin. But then God shows up. The father has a plan. The son shows up. A sacrifice is given. The spirit shows up. Life is imparted. You know, with the discovery of the DNA molecule, we know that human beings are given a set of genetic blueprints. We know that a father and a mother give exactly the same amount of genetic information to create all of the vital internal muscles and external muscles and internal organs and external tissue. In other words, we're given everything that we need in order to be human beings. When God sends Christ and the Holy Spirit, you're given everything you need in order to be healthy. You know, I was reading this week that a healthy heart is an 11 ounce muscle that's about the size of a large fist. It's the strongest muscle in the human body. Every day, this relentless muscle beats 100,000 times and pumps 1,800 gallons of blood. 
There's a small patch of tissue. It's called the sinus node. And it causes certain nerve fibers in the heart muscle to be stimulated. These fibers stimulate a muscular contraction that sends the blood flowing. And this sinus node stimulates the heart every 0.8 seconds. The fibers contract. The blood goes through the circulatory system 10 miles an hour. The blood moves through the body, supplying oxygen to every cell and then returns to the heart. From the heart, it's pumped to the lungs where it's reoxygenated and then sent back to the body. That little tiny node that sends the electrical stimulus to the heart, if it stops sending the electrical stimulus, what happens to the heart? Yeah, it's a heart attack. It's called a myocardial infarction. You have a heart attack. And when the heart has a heart attack, what does it do? Does it continue beating or does it stop beating? Sometimes it continues beating, but if it's depending on the severity, it stops beating. If the heart stops beating, does the blood stop flowing? If the blood stops flowing... Do the cells in your body die? That's exactly right. Each part is given in order to impart life. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. You are given a body that's appropriate for the circumstance that you find yourself in now, and you will be given a body... That's going to be appropriate for glory and for virtue. In other words, you'll be given a a body that's appropriate for eternal life. Peter knows that one day we will share Christ's glory and will be taken to heaven and will accompany Jesus as his constant companions throughout eternity. But the point that Peter in part is beginning to make is that you don't have to wait to go to heaven to love him and to serve him and accompany him. You can share his character now. You can share the conduct now. How? Look at verse 4. By which we have given to us exceeding great and precious promises, that through these we might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Now, remember what we've learned. The Christian life begins in faith. The Christian life continues in faith in a person. Faith that generates power. Faith of a power that leads to godliness and a godliness that enables you to trust and believe the promises that are given. That's the point. In other words, you've been given promises to enable you to develop and promote life here and now. The promises are described as exceeding great, exceeding precious promises. Peter reminds us that the faith includes God's promises. We are granted a portion of his goodness, moral excellence, and the promises. Now, remember, the promises are great because the source is God. Is your faith great because the source is God? Is the power great because the source is God? Are the promises great because the source is God? Yeah. The promises are precious because their value can't be calculated using human math and human wisdom and human riches. I want you to think for just a moment. I want you to think for just a moment. If there were no Jesus, could you have biblical saving faith? If there were no Jesus, could you have power to live a life that's honoring and pleasing to God? If there were no Jesus, would there be promises that give you an opportunity to be reconciled to God? No. Now, I want you to think about this. I want you to imagine a world where you don't have a Bible. Imagine a world where a statement is made. Beginning December 1st, you have to bring all of your Bibles to King Supers, to gigantic dumpsters, and toss your Bible in trash cans, and you can no longer have a Bible. And if you continue to have a Bible, we're going to arrest you. And then if you continue to have a Bible, we're going to punish you. And then if you continue to have a Bible, we're going to kill you. 
We're going to make it difficult for you. How could you replace the word of God in your lives? Where could you go to find exceeding great and precious promises? And you see, this is what Peter writes, by which have been given to us exceeding great and precious promises. These promises are in the word of God, Jesus, but also in the word of God, your Bible, that through these you might be partakers of the divine nature. Now, you need to understand something. When Peter writes and he says, you become partakers of a divine nature, the word divine is that same word, theos. It's, it's, it's a nature that comes from God. When a baby is born, a baby shares the nature of the mother and the father. A person who has been born of the Holy Spirit by the word of God shares in the nature of God. Now, remember, the lost sinner is dead. The Christian is alive. The Christian shares eternal divine nature. Fallen beings are under the bondage brought about by corruption and sin. The new believer is born again and shares a divine nature that allows the believer to possess eternal life. Now, part of what you need to understand is that your nature dictates your appetites and your associations and your environment. Let me help you think this through. Italian people by nature have an appetite for spaghetti with a red basil sauce with just, you know, a little oregano and some hot Italian sausage. Italians want spaghetti. Pigs want slop. Dogs will eat their own vomit. Sheep want green pastures. Nature determines appetite and behavior. A black widow spider wants to eat her husband. Nature determines appetite. It's the nature of eagles to fly. It's the nature of politicians to spend money that doesn't belong to them. It's the nature of chicken strips to be at Chick-fil-A. It's the nature of snakes to live in holes. Nature determines appetite. Nature determines association. Crows travel in what's known as a murder. Lions in a pride. Cattle in a herd. Sheep in flock. Fish in schools. If nature determines appetite, and if nature determines association, and if nature determines environment, then we ought to long for what God longs for. In other words, when you become a Christian, you have a new nature. And with the new nature comes a new appetite. You long for the things that God longs for, righteousness and purity and holiness. You long for fresh associations, associations where godliness and righteousness become a part of your life. Because we have this divine nature, now think about this. Peter is arguing because we have this divine nature, we've completely escaped the defilement and decay that is in this world through lust. Why? Because your nature is changed, your appetite is changed, your association is changed, your environment is changed. You live for him. You love him. You reflect him. We make no provision for the flesh. We don't do what the sinful nature dictates because we've been given a new nature. Godly living begins when we continue in what we know and then we feed and we cultivate the new nature that's within us. And this is what Paul writes in Galatians chapter five, that we that the spirit wars against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit. And these are contrary to one another. But when you are a Christian, when you are a Christian, when you've been born again, when you've been saved from on high, remember, the, it's a supernatural faith. It's faith in a person. It's it's faith that provides power. It's a power that comes causes you to believe promises. And these are promises that transform you. So how do we become Christians? God opens our eyes. 
God overcomes our will. God enables us to believe. And with a new nature comes a fresh hope and a fresh appetite and a fresh willingness. And that's just the first two paragraphs of Peter's last will and testament. He has a whole lot more that he's going to want to say to us. But if there's one takeaway, if there's one takeaway that I need you to take away. God isn't interested in you simply knowing more about Jesus. God is interested in you becoming like Jesus. In the way that you act. In the way that you think. In the way that you respond to one another. But we'll have a whole lot more that we can talk about later. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, there's so much to go over in so little time. But Lord, I pray, I pray, I pray, Lord, that our faith, having begun supernaturally and continuing supernaturally, that, Lord, it will be perfected in eternity future through the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we're saved by God through grace and through Jesus. We're kept by grace and Jesus. We continue by grace and Jesus. We're perfected by grace and Jesus. So where do we fit in? Lord, the truth is, we don't fit in. Clearly, all we can do in love and in rejoicing is to simply celebrate the fact that you love us, that Jesus died for us. That, Lord, you said if any of us come to you, you will in no wise cast us out. Lord, you gave us an invitation to come to you, all who are hungry, all who are thirsty. You said come to you, all who are broken and all who are empty. And, Lord, and throughout the New Testament, not a single person who ever responded to the invitation was ever rejected. All were accepted. All were welcomed. Lord, if all we have is our sin then we have just enough because that's what we need as a savior forgiveness of sin and reconciliation to you and so again Lord I pray for each and every person that in their heart they would repent of their sin and their unbelief and that they would come to you that they would express the desire to know you and to love you and to walk with you and be with you And to spend eternity with you. And so, Lord, we pray that we would continue the process of loving and growing, being nurtured in our mutual faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's.